0: Hi everybody, welcome to a special episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, and this is a complimentary episode connected to the World Politics Today Power Revisited limited series of IG Lives that we have launched a couple of weeks ago, where we are discussing the ways that the international relations system is changing and how it will affect the way that we study the field and the way that we analyze and live through the different shocks that are currently happening and the ones that will probably follow. Due to the nature of these topics and conversations, we invite you to do your own research and come with your own hypotheses and conclusions. In today's episode, we will be sharing a report on the BRICS expansion and uh, what are some possible scenarios that we could start seeing, but understanding that this is a very new announcement and that the organization will welcome the new members formally on january 1st 2024 our focus today will be to bring some understanding on what this new announcement means um, what can we expect and what are the different reactions to um, these organizations new plans for 2024 and beyond we invite you to check down below in the description box of this episode all the recommended links and articles that we are going to be quoting and referring to for further analysis and invite you once again to uh, join the conversation on social media we are currently on instagram on linkedin and on twitter at womenhood underscore ir and if you like to support our work and be part of our greater community you can become a patron today i'm gonna be listing down below on the description box the link to join. Okay, let's begin. What is the BRICS expansion? What's the fuss all about? What is the BRICS? The BRICS refers to the grouping of five major emerging economies, China, Brazil, Russia, India, and South Africa. It was first established in 2009 as an informal group of states and later in 2010, with the admission of South Africa, the acronym BRICS became internationally recognized. This informal group was originally created as an economic bloc, not a political economic bloc, though we may Um, engage in several analyses on how politics is part of this. It is important to understand that the way that the BRICS has functioned throughout these past 14-15 years is primarily on trade and international cooperation. It was perceived since its origin that The block was created to contest or to create an alternative, if that's a better word, to create an alternative to what was considered the U.S.-led international order or the Western way of creating economic blocks, such as the G7 and the g 20 One of the key goals of the BRICS as an informal grouping was to provide a counterbalance to how the Western institutions were discussing the global economy and creating international financial stability, mostly led by by large economies from developed countries that oftentimes tended to overlook the realities and uh, the decision making and uh, the negotiations with emerging economies in the global south. Is the BRICS drama free? No. Though the informal grouping presents itself as being non politically motivated, but mostly focusing on trade agreements, um, it is non-denying that during these past 14, close to 15 years, Russia and China's influence on the grouping has taken a toll on the type of conversations that they have been pursuing. Two of them have to do with the reshaping of the global energy market, seeing particularly that Russia is one of the current members of the BRICS that is mostly leading this type of conversation. And China, with the Great Belt Road Initiative, as well as many of the infrastructure projects and transportation projects that they have invested so far in different continents um, to, in order to increase their economic power. And a second point has to do with the possibility of one day agree upon a common currency that could win the power of the US dollar. Um, This has been something that from the beginning was considered, um, but during these past 14, 15 years that uh, possibility has not yet materialized, though many efforts um, from the BRICS as an informal grouping have been done on this matter, like for example, the launch of the new development bank, which is considered an alternative to the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, which, according to this grouping and the way that they have um, been expressing, do reflect more Western-aligned values than universal ones. That's a topic of conversation, of course, for another episode if we want to dig deeper onto that, but it is important to see that there has been efforts from this grouping to bring awareness in the way that international institutions actually cater more to some countries and less to others. One of the major points of existence of this grouping. Is the expansion a new concept? Yes and no. It is new in the sense that after 14, close to 15 years, the grouping has finally agreed to welcome new members. In that sense, it is new. But during this same time, more than 40 countries have expressed their interest in joining BRICS and over 23 of them have formally applied to join the informal grouping. Is there a reason why this is happening now? The Ukraine-Russia conflict has been targeted as one of the main drivers for this expansion. Not the only one, but one of the main ones because of the international community's response and condemnation of Russia's invasion to Ukraine. The large amounts of economic and diplomatic sanctions that russia has received particularly from countries such as the united states and the european union and other western allied countries in, uh, in retaliation for this conflict has moved russia to rely more on the BRICS and on its most important partner china nowadays I make this clarification because as some of you already know both of these countries were past imperial powers on their own right and though now as states the leaders of these countries may have agreed upon certain um, declarations and certain values that doesn't necessarily mean it will continue to do so because Both of them, though they have shared visions, have specific national interests that are not aligned at all. But that's a topic for another day. What is important to see here is that China and Russia's relationship has strengthened in the past 30 years. In 1991, the Sino-Soviet border agreement was a treaty signed by China and then the Soviet Union, in order to solve most of the border disputes between the two states. This treaty was later resumed by Russia after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. 10 years later, in 2001, the Treaty of Good Neighborliness and Friendly Cooperation between the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation was signed between then- President of China, Jiang Zemin, and then President and current President still of Russia, Vladimir Putin. For a shorter reference, the 2001 Sino Russian Treaty of Friendship was a strategic document that underlined the mutual cooperation of the states in terms of economics, diplomacy, environment energy, finance, trade, and geopolitical reliance. On this matter, Article 9 of the 2001 Sino-Russian Treaty of Friendship establishes, an I open quote, When a situation arises in which one of the contracting parties deems that peace is being threatened and undermined or its security interests are involved or... When it is confronted with the threat of aggression, the contracted parties shall immediately hold contacts and consultations in order to eliminate such threats. Closing quote. While the Russia-Ukrainian conflict still continues nowadays, China and Russia have deepened their multi-year economic cooperation through a series of defense and trade treaties in 2022 and later in March 2023. Fast forward a couple of months later, on August 2023, the BRICS held their annual summit in Johannesburg, South Africa. On August 24, 2023, made a major announcement that they will be welcoming by January 1st, 2024, six member states, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. The six of them have been invited to join as full members starting effectively on January 1st of next year china's president xi jinping has hailed this announcement of the membership expansion as quote historic why this announcement has been framed as a landmark decision according to statistics shared by the hindu newspaper i'm gonna be listing it down below in the description box the comparison between the current BRICS and the future BRICS expansion will significantly increase in several factors. Number one, it is estimated that the global exports of the current BRICS is 18.28%, while the new BRICS will increase this by about 2%, 20 Secondly, the Gross Domestic Product or the GDP of the current BRICS is estimated at 25.77%, while the new BRICS is expected to increase it by 4 points, that means 29%. Third, the current BRICS encompasses an estimated of 40% of the world's population. The new BRICS will increase that number by six points. That means 46%. And fourth, the oil production. And please pay attention here, because this is a key point. The current BRICS oil production is estimated at 20.4%. The new BRICS Starting in january twenty twenty four, we'll increase that number by twenty points. That means that the new BRICS oil production will be estimated in forty three point one percent, seeing particularly that three of the new member states Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates are three member states of the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, better known as OPEC. Of the new members, Saudi Arabia is the biggest oil producer, with an estimated of 12 million barrels per day, followed by the United Arab Emirates producing 4 million barrels per day And then on third place, Iran, with 3.1 million barrels per day. I'm going to be listing down below in the description box the links on uh, these statistics. Russia is featured on the second place amongst the four after Saudi Arabia. Currently, Russia is producing an estimated of 11 million barrels of oil per day. Iran, similar to Russia, has received large amounts of economic sanctions due to its nuclear enrichment program as well as massive human rights violations. Both of these states are perceived to be trying to break free from the isolation that Western influence international institutions as well as countries um, have placed on them while china has recently brokered the re-establishment of ties between saudi arabia and iran leading of course to economic and trade agreements india on its part has found favorable the addition of the united arab emirates to the brics particularly after signing, very recently, an agreement with the Federation of Six Emirates to trade in Indian rupees and Emirates dirhams instead of the US dollar. But what about Argentina, Egypt, and Ethiopia? What led to their candidacy being successful to be part of the new expansion of the BRICS. China has provided Ethiopia with billions of dollars of investments to construct major infrastructure projects. Ethiopia is also seen as a geopolitical ally due to its increasing economic power in the Horn of Africa. Several scholars and geopolitical experts i'm going to be listing some of them below in the description box believe that the addition of egypt and ethiopia to BRICS could help boost china's influence in africa while at the same time help both of these countries reduce their foreign debt burden while at the same time joining south africa another current BRICS member, increase the economic growth of the African continent, as well as the peace and security efforts. Something that we can you know, discuss on another episode because that's a whole other issue. What about Argentina? The candidacy of the country which has faced severe economic crisis in the past couple of years was mainly pushed by Brazil. Brazil is Argentina's leading trade partner, followed by China in a second place. In a third place is the United States. Argentina's president Alberto Fernandez has declared that this alliance with the BRICS will bring new opportunities for Argentina to expand to other markets and to help create new jobs, to increase the exports and increase the access to better and new technologies. However, this could all change on October 22nd, 2023. It is presidential election time in Argentina and five candidates are running up for this election. Javier Milei, Patricia Bullrich, Sergio Massa, Juan Chiaretti, and Miriam Bregman. Out of the five, only two so far, Javier Milei and Patricia Bullrich have expressed very direct skepticism about China. In the case of Bullrich, um, she has already announced her opposition to argentina's addition or entrance to the BRICS. so if she wins it is estimated or expected that uh, the withdrawal of argentina from this uh, economic block will happen but once again it is one of the things that are considered as possibilities She hasn't won the election and even if she wins the election she may be opposing it to it now but once she's on office or in office she may change. You never know. So these are the stakes so far. Interesting to see um, how this will play out and at this point I want to finish off this episode talking about two things. The first one is how will we know the impact of the BRICS expansion for further analysis. Though the accession will happen next year, at the beginning of next year, it is highly likely that we will see the impact of this decision on the 16th BRICS Leaders Summit, which will be hosted in October 2024 in the city of kazan russia so as you can see a very strategic chess board game taking place and if you are connecting the dots with everything that we shared earlier perhaps this will not be any surprise to you what will happen then but i also wanted to address um, the politics aspect because some of you have shared on our Instagram um, when I launched the ask a question for this episode on world politics today on the BRICS expansion. One of the main questions was about, okay, so is this going to launch a new currency? Uh, Is this going to dethrone the dollar? Is it possible that it will lead to a common currency, etc.? I think that that's when politics come at play, not when economics comes at play. We could talk about the European Union as a model of reference, but since there are different cultures and variables at play here, what I will be uh, addressing is the um, lack of cohesion of values amongst the state's leaders. So one of the key things that we have seen year tras year in the leaders' summits of the BRICS is the lack of cohesion or agreement on several controversial issues by state members, particularly Brazil, India, and South Africa have chosen in several instances to remain neutral or non-aligned on certain statements that the Sino-Russian bloc of China and Russia have wanted them to engage or be more um, critical to the West. India and Brazil have expressed constantly that their relationships, particularly with the United States and some member states of the European Union are to remain unchallenged by the BRICS decisions or the BRICS action plans for the years ahead. Will this change with the new state members that will be joining the BRICS? That's something worth noting for those of you that will be following these news closely. And for those of you that are interested more in power dynamics and the work that we do here in the podcast with feminist analysis to international relations, I want to invite you to explore further this um, concept of when those power blocks, be it economically or politically or a combination of the two, stop being alter and become mainstream. And I started working on this concept on, okay, so they wanted to create a BRICS in an informal way in order not to create a lot of animosity with the liberal international order or those that were influencing that particular order um, as an alternative. But then the behaviors, the speeches and the actions and the decision making of two of the actors, uh, China and Russia, in this case, are mostly anti-Western. So, when does the alter West becomes an anti-West, and when does the anti-West becomes? instead of an alternate reality, or an alternate power play, or an alternate power space, whatever it is, when does that alternate become mainstream? And is it inevitable when we are talking about past imperial powers, such as China and Russia, that have not experienced colonization the same as, for example, South Africa, Brazil, or India, that the solution that they propose to a problem that they see in which other past imperial powers from the West that they feel do not embrace them or recognize that they were two past imperial powers or, you know, trying to take power away from them are creating... By, by trying to create a solution to that problem, they eventually create the same problem that they were criticizing about. China and Russia are not seeing the economic block the same as India, the same as South Africa, the same as Brazil, much less the same as how other um, new member states of the BRICS will see the economic block. That's a given, that's not even like a, a conversation matter. We are talking about two past imperial powers that have for the past 30 years, if we go back, we can find other traces. But since the 1990s, they have deliberately taking the decision to merge their agreements their trade their military their diplomacy their ways of living culture thinking etc in a very explicit way and we could say you know similar to how the united states and the united kingdom have made you know cultural and trade agreements you know seeing each other as brothers or whatever you know like whatever bromance is going on. Of course, using feminist IR analysis, something interesting is happening here, which is that partly due to the BRICS and partly due to the One China policy and the Xi Jinping's administration's uh, vision towards their economy, China is about to surpass the United States as the largest economy in the world and it is interesting to see that this economic bloc that was created at a time to um, bring solidarity amongst emerging economies is now being led in an unequal way by those that are not emerging anymore I'm talking about China because, as we know, Russia's economy is <laughs> experiencing a lot of trouble. But, you know, China is not an emerging economy anymore. It may be blooming, it may be prospering a lot. But um, when does the emerging stops <laughs> and the emerging becomes established? You know, like when when do you reach a point where you're not booming, but you're actually getting to the throne or getting to the place where, you know, you already rule, you know, like, when does that happen? This leads me to another question. Is it possible that member states may outgrow the organizations that they are part of? And this is not only talking about BRICS, I'm talking about the G7 and what happened with the g8 you know like the g7 took a strong stance against russia for their annexation of crimea and it became the g7 and in some ways there are conversations that there is a g5 in place or you know like it's very interesting how member states create their own spheres of power with those states that are aligned to their interests foreign or domestic, or culturally as well um, and, and you know, withdraw or say goodbye or try to pressure or try to create counter movements or counterparts to other clubs that are different than them. <laughs> Very similar to human behavior in that sense. Um, it's interesting. I, I see the parallels, you know, like sometimes you want to be part of a basketball team or, I don't know, a swimming team. And then they don't allow you in because you are shorter or you don't feel, you know, you don't have the weight or the height or whatever. So you create your own basketball team uh, that is more connected to your own personal appearance or your personal values etc and then invite people that are similar to you but then in this case of the BRICS we're not talking about countries that are similar in values nor similar in cultures not similar in some ways in the economic models but they do seem similar in feeling left out (laughs) (laughs) left out of the big power spheres and very keen to be part of another power sphere where they feel included or, you know, being part of, you know? This leads me to the final two questions that I want to share with you um, in case you want to reflect on this further. One of them has to do with are international sanctions strangling or shaming countries that do not adhere to the international quote-unquote norms are they becoming so violent to the spirit of states or the energetics of countries something that we can talk in another episode we have addressed some of it in psychology in ir and energetics in ir too but is the shame element here causing or provoking these new power spheres or these new power dynamics or the reshaping of the international order is this reshaping of the international order becoming so violent because of the shame that has not been addressed or that continually keeps on being reinforced and This brings me to my second question, which is before there was these current power actors, the international order, how was it created and where were the states that agreed upon that international order? This is an interesting question because It seems when you're studying international relations that the international order just appeared out of nowhere oh you know after uh, the Second World War there was a new international order that was established by the United Nations creation and you know the agenda that they led or you know the Cold War established a new international order because you know these power actors did not speak with one another and were spying on each other and then after the cold war came the post-cold war era in the 1990s and then quote-unquote the liberal order won like who decides what the international order is at first i thought maybe the united nations could be like a good place to contextualize the state of the international order because of the way that they you know, pursue the international law or create mandates and agreements between the Assembly General, the General Assembly and, you know, the UN Security Council with the different resolutions and norms and behaviors, etc. And perhaps here I'm touching more uh, constructivist theory than feminist theory. But seeing that feminist theory stems from constructivist theory, um, perhaps you may follow my train of thought. Um, But in constructivist theory, we address this further, you know, like how norms and behaviors of states are agreed upon and created, you know. The question that I have here is, is this shame or is this violence that states are perceiving nowadays Uh, in the form of sanctions, in the form of war, in the form of military deployment, in the form of threats or nuclear threats, or missiles parade in the case of North Korea, or hunger as a strategy or weapon of war in the case of Yemen. Like, What is going on that these norms that were once agreed upon Are not functioning anymore and who and when is it decided that new norms and a new order is about to emerge or about to happen or about to take form and what prevents states from announcing you know what this international order it doesn't work I want to create my own international order and who says that they cannot do so And who prevents them from doing so? Like, for example, in the case of China and in the case of Russia, which, by the way, both states have continuously said since the 2010s decade that they are not conforming to the international order, that this is broken, that this is benefiting some and not all, that there are many issues at stake that are not being considered, that some states are being heard while others are not. And yes, we can say that China and Russia have their own interests and their own vision of what an international order may look like that primarily benefits them because of course they would not create a system a new system or a new order that does not benefit them um but is it dishonest and this is interesting is it dishonest to pursue an international order under the premise of first projecting yourself of being an underdog hey i'm an emerging economy i want to create an alternate waste uh west uh group because we feel left out okay which you're perhaps economically are but politically you're not because your ambitions are greater than simply just you know harmoniously relating to the states around you no, you want to expand and you want to grow as a nation and you want to if possible take more land or you know reconfigurate the way that states are which you know are imperialistic visions is it dishonest to say that you just want to create something to counterbalance when very deep down you just want to create a new order that benefits you you alone not others you're not necessarily looking for the underdog are you you know like these are questions that are interesting to explore in this case and for that matter if china and russia want to create a new international order that benefits them and you know the world according to china or sino-centric or russia-centric whatever it is it brings also the other question what's wrong with that why do we fear it happening why there's resistance to that possibility and this is another concept to explore and to deepen because you know Taking consideration that some of us were raised in the Western world and under these Western values and the way that IR system, you know, was created, etc., under this these specific readings from the West that is mostly focusing on Aero American centrism, on the readings of IR analysis, it's possible that we see or we were taught to see china and russia as the enemies or not necessarily the enemies because depends on the school but you know like they are different and the west sees them as a threat either because of communism or because of the human rights violations or because of the way that culture is different than us etc um we created a a review on the National Cultures Index that is amazing. I'm gonna be listing it down below on the description box as a recommended episode or related episode to this that explains this further. Fascinating, fascinating the National uh, Cultures Index. I invite you to check it out. Um, But yeah, is it possible that we also in the West have been taught that we need to fear an international order that is led by these particular two states or some say is China because Russia right now is at a point of survival, not at a point of, you know, trying to take over the world where they're just trying to, you know, maintain um, the state from crumbling. Um, China is on another game and other under other circumstances, though there are many reports Um, that in domestic soil, uh, there are many um, affairs affecting the uh, Communist Party um, power. But yeah, because of the Hermetic nature of China, we may not necessarily have the best information or an accurate information on what's really going on every day there. Um, but yeah, it, it's possible that we were also taught to fear that order and therefore if we are working in foreign policy in our countries or if we are working on lobbying groups or, I don't know, giving classes at universities on this matter, we may have a very persistent bias to reject anything that comes from there or or to dismiss it as oh that's not unimportant that that's that doesn't go anywhere don't worry china the united states will not allow that to happen or probably you know the AUKUS pact we should not worry about china we china will be contained the same with russia it's like is this strain of thought Ingrained, taught, contests constantly reproduced around us on our media in the Western world. Basically producing our view of what an international order should be. And now that we are seeing other sides of the coin... Other possibilities of other international orders, we may want to reject them or dismiss them or take out of that importance, take um, not give it too much importance because guess what, the other international order will not benefit us. If you know, that's the perception. We don't know, you know? Perhaps we are already in the international, in the new international order. Are we? I mean, I don't know who says that we are in the new one. Um, That's why I'm doing this um, series of world politics today because I feel like right now the international order, the international relations as a field is changing. And that's why I call this limited series power revisited because do we really know what's on the other side of all these power dynamics what's happening behind closed doors that we don't know of and that may already be affecting the way that domestic affairs or international affairs are being done and better yet The question is not, do we really know? Is the hard question to answer is, do we want to know? Do we really, really want to know what's going on behind closed doors? Or are we just content with the superficial, with what they say to us? We just take it for granted this is a hard question to answer because at first our minds the first question our minds will say of course i want to know i don't want to be left in the shadows you know human curiosity is part of human nature i need to know what's going on okay but when you are told one thing and then you look a bit deeper and you see that there's a whole other um, scenarios going on you may wish to never have found out in the first place what was lying underneath. And there's a good movie that I'm going to recommend to you. Uh, It may not be for everybody. Um, It's a movie about uh, the military-industry complex in the United States and the different protocols since we are talking about norms and international order. Um, It's called A Few Good Men. Um, is with Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise is from the 1990s. I think he won an Oscar, uh, Jack Nicholson, for his um, portrayal of a captain, uh, Navy captain, I think he was. The movie is very, very good. Um, at least for those of us that are working in the WPS um, may, may find it very interesting. It may not be for everybody because these are heavy topics, but there's a scene, if you don't wanna watch it, um, I'm gonna tell you this the scene, so this is going to be a sp- spoiler. Um, but basically, they're doing a trial over the murder of a marine, um, and they're talking about um, orders that were given by the captain, and you know, a secret code, code red, that was um, a subdirect order. That is like, uh, I'm telling you something from my mouth like you know my words are saying something but my intention is another so you should follow my intention not necessarily what i say you know like what what is the um, the perception of oh when he says he's saying do not do it He's basically looking at me like I should do it, regardless of what he's saying, you know, like that type of code red uh, perception. So anyway, there was a victim, uh, a Marine that was uh, accidentally killed under this uh, code red. And there was a trial. And, you know, Jack Nicholson was, you know, excluding himself from any guilt and any shame, because guess what? You know, he gave an order to not touch the Marine. However, there was a code red underlying that order. And that code red was, yes, touch that Marine because he cannot be part of us, okay? See the connection with the clubs and the, you know, Alter West and anti-West economic clubs, etc. There is a connection here. <laughs> um, the whole point of the scene is that he gets so boiled up by the, ins- by the question it is, the, the questions of the lawyer that the lawyer says, tell me the truth, tell me what happened. He said, you cannot handle the truth, the famous quote. But he goes on to say, you know, like a lot of people blame the Marines, the military, the, the, they do not want people with guns around them, the policemen, etc But in the end, you sleep sound And clear every night because there are people like him, you know, on the barricades, on the military bases, on, you know, the ships or whatever the military bases are trying to save the day, trying to protect you. From all these external threats, and we have seen it in many countless of movies, you know, from nuclear threats to uh, chemical weapons to biological weapons to terrorist acts to any type of harm to uh, the poisoning of rivers to the poisoning of air. There are people that are committed to create trouble and create harm to other people and people from other nationalities as well. There are a lot of things that going on around the world. We can sleep sound and clear and forget about the world, but that doesn't mean that someone is on the other side of the wall protecting your sleep. And I think there was a very valuable lesson to all of them involved there and for us viewers as well is that How many of our liberties, of our freedoms, do we take for granted, thinking that, oh, they're just given by the state? Yeah, but who protects those freedoms? Who actually is on the front line preventing other people, other countries, other systems, whatever, aliens, if you want to, you know, go that way now that there's an aerial air force, you know, a spatial air force, I don't know, um you know, protecting your freedoms, protecting your life, but we are not seeing them. We just want them gone and we just want them away from us. And, you know, in a way, military is part of the state's survival, is how the modern state as a structure can survive. And today we talked about economics a bit because i'm not an expert on economics so i try to report on what's going on with the bricks i try to do my best effort on reporting on economics though that's not my um that's not my my expertise um I can only see it from the lenses of what I know of, which is more politics and international relations and feminist theory in IR. So that's why I took this 30 minutes long to provide this type of analysis. Perhaps if you speak with an economist and you read economist analysis on the BRICS, you will find very good value on the BRICS um, because that's another lesson here it depends on who's looking at the system and through which eyes that system is looked and that's how I'm gonna end today's episode it's interesting to see that Russia and China are the ones moving the bricks for each they see what they want to see for Russia BRICS is a tool or a group where they can avoid isolationism and for China it's just a vehicle to continue expanding their influence and growing as not an emerging economy, a large or the world's largest economy about to top the United States if they have not already because you know who knows what's going on. I'm gonna leave it here share with us your feedback your comments and your questions on social media we are currently on instagram on linkedin and on twitter at womenhood underscore ir if you want to support our work you can uh, follow us and join our patreon community i'm gonna be listing the link down below in the description box thank you so much for tuning in talk to you soon